Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing tonight? Seth? Doing okay? We had a morning last time you were the non-expert, and now it's nighttime, and I appreciate the range of time. <laughs> I'm trying to to get all the potential options of when people yeah. listen to us. You know, if someone's listening to this at 2 a.m. on a Thursday, which apparently happened, we want them to know that, hey, we respect the night and the day. Just, just ask me the question. Just... <laughs> Get me out of this. <laughs> what would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to be an itinerant preacher or work as a dentist? <laughs> okay. Some of our listeners may not know, but I am a clergy in the United Methodist Church, which is an itinerant system. I would got I, I gotta go with being an itinerant preacher over being a dentist though, man. I've had so I've had some like more serious dental work done this year, to the point where I've like like I on a first name basis with my dentist and the the assistant that works directly with him, because their hands have been in my mouth for hours, and like if you if you ever looked in your mouth, it's disgusting, and I don't want to put my hands in other people's mouths all the time. I really think I'd much rather be an itinerant preacher, but I'm rethinking it because I'm also knowing, like thinking about the pay involved with both of those. <laughs> and I think you could pay me enough to keep to, to, to have my your hands, hands in people's, people's mouths, mouths for a living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was supposed to go to the dentist during the coronavirus pandemic, but they canceled my appointment, which I thought was good because the last thing I wanted during a pandemic that's like an upper respiratory infection and so, virus that spreads via droplets in the air is someone leaning over my mouth <laughs> with their hands like poking and prodding right over me. Yep. Man. So I need I need to make an appointment. You do, Seth. But and everybody, please like go to the dentist. At least go like once a year. Like I know the recommendation is more. But if, even if you just go that often, you're going to catch the stuff that's going to cause you the harm in the long run. I didn't go all three years of seminary because I like just moved to Northern Virginia and like didn't feel settled enough or adult enough to have a dentist. <laughs> and that's why I've had to go to the dentist so much this year is because I had some serious work that needed to be done as a result of the damage. So go like take care of yourself, Seth. Go to the dentist. We have to somehow bring this back 
I think it's just gonna be like it's just gonna be like a dead disappointment. You just gotta get it over with. <laughs> Jonathan, will you read our our text for today? I would be happy to. This is coming from Jeremiah chapter twenty, beginning in verse one, and this is Robert Alter's translation of the book of Jeremiah. And Pashur, son of Emer, the priest, he was the chief official in the house of the Lord. He heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And Pashur struck Jeremiah and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was in the house of the Lord. And it happened on the morrow that Pashur let Jeremiah out of the stocks. And Jeremiah said to him, Not Pashur has the Lord called your name, but terror all around. For thus said the Lord, I am about to give you over to terror, you and all who love you, and they shall fall by the sword of your enemies, with your own eyes beholding, and all Judah will I give into the hand of the king of Babylonia, and he shall exile them to Babylonia, and strike them down with the sword. And I will give all that is stored in this city, and all its gain, and all its precious stuff, and all the treasures of the king of Judah, I will give into the land of their enemies. And they shall plunder them, and take them, and bring them to Babylonia. Woo. Man, we got a doozy this week, Seth. <laughs> Why did you go with Alter's translation? I love Alter's translation because it's so attentive to the Hebrew, to the cadences of it, to the wordplay that's going on. And one of the one of the features of biblical Hebrew is that sentences often start with and. But our most of our modern translations just askew that because that's not how we write today. And the translators think, well, that's an awkward construction, and people don't want to read every sentence that starts with and. But for Alter, he he says something like, the and would have been obvious and would have been like a, a verbal cue to the hearers of the original text. So I want to keep that. So if we can think back to what Jonathan read for us so well, Almost, not all of the sentences, but almost all of them start with and. That's just one example of one of the ways that he's so attentive to the text. He mm. wants us to hear that. And I think the and, the and makes it seem even more consecutive to me. Like this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Which I think is one of the things that we lose in our, in our cleaned up modern translations. I love how attentive he is to the text. One other note is in his books, he has little notes about why he picked some of the words that he does, which I think are, are always helpful and insightful. And we'll talk just about one of them. Is there anything that stood out to you when you were reading? Okay, this text is so extra. It is. <laughs> that's, that's what's coming to mind. And it's mostly just Jeremiah. And, and you know, I noticed at the beginning uh, in verse 1, it talks about he, the, you know, the king heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And I imagine that these things were just also some things that made Pashur kind of angry. So that maybe him putting Jeremiah in the stocks was also kind of extra. But, like... It's not just you going over to terror. It's you and all who love you, and your enemies are coming. 
and I'm going to take all of your treasure, all your precious stuff. That's my favorite line. <laughs> and I'm going to take all the city, all its gain, all of its precious stuff, all the treasures of the king, I'm giving them over to your enemies. And I'm just, <laughs> I know that this moment is really a significant one uh, in Jeremiah, but I cannot get the image out of my head of Jeremiah just being way too angry about being punished for what he said and just going off the rails. And that's I think that's what's standing out to me. The language and the way that Alter translated it too, like you were mentioning, that the things are just kind of running on and on and there's so many layers to it. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. Like that, just that extra level that's really not necessary, but really re-emphasizes the severity of what's going to be happening there. What Jeremiah was talking about right before our passage is he takes a, a clay jar and he throws it on the ground, shatters it, and then he, he looks at everyone and says, this is what's going to happen to Judah when Babylon comes through. Man. <laughs> like, talk well, about extra. Yeah. Man, I love prophetic imagery like that. And, like, the imagery that the prophets used, it's just so, it's so on the nose sometimes. <laughs> I'm thinking a lot of the weird stuff that happened in Ezekiel, too. We don't have to get into it, but there's some some weird stuff that they use to prove God's point sometimes. Yeah. And I, I love Jeremiah because I feel like Jeremiah doesn't just say it. Like, he could have said, oh, it's just like a, like a clay pot that's going to get shattered into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. He's out here doing it. Like, he's the one who right. brings <laughs> the clay pot and just throws it on the ground. Yeah, All I'm the think, pieces. I'm thinking of that, like, if you were, if Jeremiah was a prophet today, too, and did something like, like, smashed a clay pot outside City Hall or something like that, you know, we'd be looking at him like he was bonkers. <laughs> this is this is actually a really good translation to the one note that that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Robert Alter says he chose the word struck, Pasher struck Jeremiah. He and he says this might be merely a slap. Yeah. <laughs> but the verb use could also mean beaten. Like mm. I kind of like think of it as a slap. Yeah, when I was reading it, I pictured a backhanded smack to the face. Like, exactly. Shut up. <laughs> That's like, exactly how I picture it. Man. Yeah, talk well, about extra. Yeah, well, is there anything else with like the story of this text that is really important for our understanding of it? The one thing that I'll add is that what happens after this is that Jeremiah just keeps going is that this moment when he's in the stocks and he like declares all this terrible stuff that's going to happen to Pasher, this doesn't seem to slow him down one bit. Like, this is just like a bump in the road for him. Sure, yeah. Like, this is like, like to me, that this would I'd be telling this story for the rest of my life. Like, this guy slapped me and then he put me in the stocks <laughs> and then I said this to him. This honestly almost feels, it's so excessive that it almost feels like Jeremiah telling the story at the bar after it happened. Yeah, like adding all these details, maybe it did, but it just, it, it carries that kind of, that kind of tone, that kind of feels, you know, especially as, again, as, as Alter translated it here. 
I will say one of the things that this is, I don't necessarily know how this might play out with this text. One of the things that sticks out to me about the book of Jeremiah in general is the framework of a traumatic experience. It is very unlikely, at least from what I've studied, that someone was following Jeremiah around as he smashed the pot and was in the stocks um, leading up to the time of exile, this devastating moment for the people of Israel, in much stronger likelihood, not only the book of Jeremiah, but probably most of the Hebrew Bible was written either during the time of exile or after the exile in a way that's looking back, trying to maybe trying to understand what happened. But not just from like this removed kind of third party, 10,000 foot view you know, thinking about how they were remembering these experiences that led up to the most devastating event in their community's history, in their people's history, an event that threatened to kind of wipe them out as a people group, uh, an event that would ultimately shape their experience as a people for generations, centuries to come. And I don't necessarily know how that plays out here specifically but you know i can kind of see see the echoes of like trying to figure out like trying to scrape through the recollections the memories for some sort of explanation as to why this horrible thing happened to them and if it was this moment of you know this prideful act against jeremiah i think more of jeremiah gets into the actual reasons why that you know people were thinking about why the exile happened but that's just a lens that always comes to mind immediately for me when thinking about jeremiah specifically Um, and i think that's actually a helpful way to to think about where the book came from and how it took shape but I, i don't know if you have any any thoughts on that or if that came up as you were reading through stuff at all i think it's always helpful when we read the old testament to have the exile in the back of our head and just to keep asking that question, like how, how is this literature a response to this communal tragic event? And how is it witnessing to the way, the way that they're processing it and the way that they want to live moving forward and to kind of form a new identity post-exile? I think that's, yeah, I think that's really well said. At least in the tradition I grew up in, these texts were to be viewed as literal history and i think while i've departed from that view i don't find them any less historically significant you know like they they gain this new meaning because they were written and developed and you know written down maybe generations of oral tradition to remember and make sense of horribly painful experiences and to try to in a sense resurrect the history and culture of a people group and that that to me adds a layer of depth and meaning that i think at least in my in my memory it's far like can connect to that far more easily and in a far more meaningful way than i could to just thinking oh this is the literal story of what happened to everybody um, I'd rather be working. I'd rather be working with their memories and experiences than just kind of a, a detached narrative, you know. 
Yeah, that's helpful, thinking about the difference of what's, what's happening when they're reflecting back. And how would it be different if they were just kind of writing it as they go? Did you have anything else on the story of this text? I think we covered most of the story about the text. The, the one just phrase that I love <laughs> is when he, ch- he ch- kind of changes Pasher's name to Terror All Around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like if that isn't the summary of what's also going to happen to him. I don't know what is. Like, that's just amazing to me. I feel like that would be my summary of the story. So is that usually in situ... That is probably, I'm imagining, also a translation. Right? Correct. Like, like he, that maybe that altar made? Is that is that what happened there? Correct. But I think that's so amazing. He's like, this isn't your name. But instead, it's terror all around. I often think of the renaming positively like your name's not going to be abram but it's going to be abraham like your name's isaac because he laughed Mm. and this is this naming is different right this naming is like you get this terrible name tear all around it's a curse it's not a blessing it's a curse yeah exactly on a fun side note, the Common English Bible translates the new name as Panic Lurks Everywhere. <laughs> I kind of love Which, that. Yeah, all of these are amazing. The, the na- that name change is also a really significant... It's something we need to pay attention to. Because like the examples you cited, it's identifying a turning point for someone that's really important. You know, you mentioned Abram and you think about Jacob to Israel... Gideon received a new name in the book of Judges. There's so many that they're, something about their identity changed based on their relationship with God and what they were to, setting out to do in the world. And I don't know if those same dynamics are at play here, but something's going on and something significant's happening when you're starting to call someone terror all around or panic lurks everywhere. <laughs> All right, so we've talked. We've had some good conversation about the story of the text. What do you think the point of the text is? I've been thinking about this text in regard to kind of the resistance that people can experience from from preaching the word of God, from being itinerant preachers. That's where my question came from. Mm. I think of Jeremiah kind of running around as this itinerant prophet, and it and it ends with him in the stocks here, and he's released. But just some of the pushback that he gets, some of the pushback I think that people get, like in the in wider society, in their families, and in our story today, even terror all around doesn't <laughs> seem to be a force that stops Jeremiah. Hmm. He's like, you're terror all around, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Like, it just, the story continues. I think that idea of courage in the face of adversity, maybe to put it a little more generally, when thinking about the need to speak the truth, so to say, when that opportunity comes up, how do we respond? There are countless examples in the Bible and throughout history of people who are slapped and put in the stocks in some way because of the things that they're saying and proclaiming. And Jeremiah is tenacious. He is 
just rolling through all this stuff in a way that I don't know that we have as close of a comparison. You know, because, and I think part of that's because of my bias of the idea of the itinerant preacher being the person who moves from one church to another every several years or so, rather than maybe the more, like the earlier idea of you go and preach one place one time and then go on to another place. I think that model makes more sense because, I mean, a lot of what I've heard as I've been instructed about preaching and teaching is to meet people where they are and try to not make people too uncomfortable and really couching being prophetic and speaking truth to power in a way that doesn't undercut the existing power structures, if that makes sense. Like, are often being more comfortable cozying up to power rather than being critical of it. And I don't think you can be all one way or all the other all of the time. I don't think that's an effective witness. But you do have to step out and speak boldly, even when it's going to cost you greatly. I'm reminded of this this story that Will Willimon tells when he was dean of Duke Chapel. And the students came to him and said, Dr. Willimon, you're so good at telling people what they're doing wrong that you tell them and they don't even know that you were that you were doing it. And he said, well, well, thank you. And he said, oh, you're welcome, but we want you to write a letter to the administration. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And then he says, then I realize the letter was to me. I'm part of the administration. <laughs> There's always this tension, like you were saying, of we want to critique the power structures, but we're often told, well, we can't critique them too much. Right? We have to. We have this fine balancing act that we have to do, and it's especially hard when we have something to lose, to critique the power structure that we're a part of, and then yeah. to, and to keep doing it. So I think this example pales in comparison with what we read from Jeremiah, and with a lot of examples of speaking truth to power that we see in our context even today. Uh, but I'm thinking of a recent experience I had. Um, being at the stage I'm in as a clergy person in the United Methodist Church, I've been told in not so many words that it's helpful to kind of walk the line, to toe the line, not ruffle too many feathers until I'm fully ordained, you know, have full clergy credentials and all that. And that's been a really hard thing in response to a lot of our denomination's decision and the church in Virginia's decisions related to the United Methodist Church's policies around LGBTQ persons, around their ordination, their ability to be married in the United Methodist Church. And our bishop in Virginia decided to enforce these policies in a much stricter way than they needed to be when it was asked that they be kind of alleviated while some things were being worked out to potentially make a different decision at one of our voting conferences. And... I really wrestled with joining a letter campaign that a number of clergy, including some good friends of mine, were organizing, expressing our frustration with this decision. And so, long story short, I did write a letter, and I did sign it, but I did not type my name anywhere. I didn't 
include any identifying information. And I sent it. I haven't faced any backlash for it because I don't I don't know short of bringing in a you know a, a handwriting expert how they necessarily identify that it was me. I stand by what I wrote, but there's also part of me that's like, man, I I really wish I had taken a bolder stand in that moment. The reason that story comes to mind is not to elevate me or that action uh, in any way other than just to tell the story, but to think about how often we have the opportunity to speak truth and how we wrestle with and reckon with the cost of it. And at the time, I think I made the right decision with how I wrote that letter. As I think back about it now, kind of removed from it, I think I'm a little frustrated with myself. But we have opportunities consistently to push back and to speak, I keep using this phrase, but to speak truth, even if it comes at a cost to us. And I don't know how often I'm willing to actually pay the cost what you're talking about was just what I was trying to get at with my what would you do in this particular situation question. Mm. Like, it can be really hard to be the itinerant preacher who, do you, to use your words, speaks truth. And it's sometimes the safe bet is to just be the dentist. Mm. And that's not to say that dentists aren't important because I need to go to the dentist. I do think there's a certain... There is a certain safety with being a dentist. That's We talked about this at the beginning. One of the nice parts about being a dentist is the paycheck, right? That provides yeah. a, certain, a certain safety. Sure. And I think it can also be... It can be easier to tell people the truth about their teeth than it is sometimes to talk about the truth of their deep-seated behaviors and the way that they participate in, in structures that advantage themselves and disadvantage others mm. which sometimes that's to say that sometimes i'm even a little jealous of the dentist we don't usually do this but i this feels like an opportunity to kind of call ourselves to some action what do you where do you see yourself being able to maybe take a bolder step in speaking or acting against some sort of injustice when President Trump got elected, I was like gung-ho. I wrote to my senator like constantly so much that I think they just started ignoring my letters. Like I would write to them, and at the beginning I would get one back, and then I would just keep writing to them about issues, and they just stopped. And then, and then I kind of stopped too. I thought, man, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I'm not doing anything. And I was writing to them about a variety of things, especially especially income inequality and tax reform and the way that our current tax structure advantages people who already have a lot of money and disadvantages people who already are not making a lot of money or barely getting by. But frankly, it's just pretty sad to me that I was like real gung-ho and then I just let it go by the wayside. I just kind of resigned myself to thinking, well... I'm not getting anywhere. I guess I'll just... I guess I'll just leave it at that. I think for me, you know, in light of... In light of this moment, 
where white supremacy seems to be more on trial than it has been in a long time. I think I'm putting I've been putting a lot of pressure on myself to try to dismantle the whole thing <laughs> or at least like at least me and my friends can make some good progress on it or something when it's just not a realistic goal and when when I inevitably fall short of that it's going to be pretty discouraging so I've been trying to like name some more specific ways that I can speak and act and against and like try to work towards some reforms about anti-racism in areas where I have influence. So I think about the way in my work at, at the college, like when I'm interacting with students, how am I recognizing my own implicit bias? And how am I responding in certain situations in direct interaction with students? How am I responding to colleagues and peers who are not as mindful or not being as mindful in that moment about their participation in those kinds of systems and how do I speak against racist behavior or comments or things like that. And I think this is not the only area of injustice that we can speak against, um, but it's just so, so on my mind right now. And just thinking about you don't have to be proclaiming that I'm just thinking about you don't have to change someone's name in a public setting, like a huge public setting with a huge following to really make a difference and an influence. And just thinking about the places that we already have some measure of control, whether that be our friendships and relationships or our work or our research or even this podcast in ways that chip away rather than thinking about like burying the explosive deep inside and getting rid of everything all in one fell swoop. Just thinking about that next faithful step we can take to learn more about how our world is broken and how we are in need of deep healing uh, from Christ. It's difficult, at least for me, to develop these as, as like really long-lasting habits. Like I talked about how I, I was writing letters and I was writing letters and then it trailed off. And I don't want my work against white supremacy to be the same. Like, I don't want it to, to trail off. I want, and even just to stand still, to say, okay, what, what I'm doing now, this is just what it, this is what it's going to be. I feel like I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to grow complacent here. I need to keep working and pushing forward and chipping away even if that doesn't change the whole system, like you said, but it can change our friend groups and like our, our the relationships that we have mm -hmm. to try and to try and cultivate a way to do it long term. I think we need to remember too that we are going to become complacent with this with this stuff. We are going to fall short even of these standards that we're trying to set for ourselves now. And I think the biggest thing that we can do when we're trying to call out injustice or broken systems or oppression, things that need to be made right and whole again, is to be willing to hear that about ourselves as well. I think that's, that's one of the biggest things I'm learning right now is when I am being called racist 
you know, Abram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is talking about removing the stigma from the term racist as like a, as like a slur, essentially, and making it an adjective. It describes the behavior or the language rather than casting off the person. Remember that I still need that calling out because I'm still learning and growing. I'm still unlearning as well a lot of ways that I'm used to operating. And I think when we're living in community and are in places where we can trust that we're calling each other out in good spirit, that's when the real progress can be made is when we're willing to hear it ourselves too. I think this openness to being critiqued and to seeing our own flaws, uh, both in terms of our self-reflection and people, other people's analysis and correction of us. I think that's also helpful. I even wonder if that's something that Jeremiah would be open to, or if he would just, or if he would just say, oh, that's true. That's you just change change, change your name and, and talk exactly. about all the just terrible things that are going to happen yeah. to you. Maybe that's not the best example for us then, but I think I think his message of his me- message of continuing to speak up and like continuing to work even in the face of adversity is a really really timely one for sure. It's interesting to me to think about how it's it's a habit for Jeremiah. This is part of his bone marrow. Is that is that true for me? Yeah. And how can I cultivate that? Sounds like a great place to stop today, Seth. Do you want to pray for us? I'd love that. God, your servant Jeremiah spoke the truth to those in power, even when that landed him in the stocks. Empower us to do the same to speak against forces that disadvantage people. And by doing so, we follow your son, Jesus Christ, our savior and Lord. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story are we telling next week? We're going to stay in the Hebrew Bible, Seth, and look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.